Good morning, everybody. <laughs> um, we are in a series in Luke's Gospel, um, which we've been doing for quite a long time. Um, uh, we actually have just two more weeks in Luke's Gospel, progressing through it as we have been. Um, Claire Boko and Dave Monday are speaking the next couple of weeks, and what they cover is going to take us up to the Easter story. But actually, we looked at the Easter story being intelligent people, uh, at Easter. So we've already done that chunk. And so getting right up to the Easter story will mean that we've got to the end of progressing through the Gospel of Luke. And then over the remainder of the summer, in July and August, we're going to go back and look at some of the parables in Luke's Gospel. So that's how we're going to finish off the series, and we'll get through it by the end of August. Last week, Al McNichol spoke about Bartimaeus, and Zacchaeus, and the parable of the ten minas. He called them minas. I would have called them miners, although that always makes me think about people underground. So maybe that was much more helpful for everybody to listen to. And um, he rightly pointed out last week that the part of Luke's gospel that we're in, you might like to turn to it, it's in Luke chapter 19, that the part of the gospel that we're in uh, records... Jesus' determined journey towards Jerusalem. And this week, we get as far as his entry into Jerusalem, the very end of that journey, as Jesus finally reached the city. The passage that we've got this week doesn't only continue the story of the journey, but it also continues the theme that was raised last week. Al described well to us how the parable of the minas was a parable about a man becoming king and how the people were prompted to respond to that king, to decide their own response to the king in the story. And up until this point, Jesus had taught many parables about something called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the main subject of Jesus' teaching. Uh, Many people today might think of Jesus as a great moral teacher, a bit like an olden days Gandhi or Mandela. But his focus was on something called the kingdom of God. It's what he spoke about more than anything else. But throughout his life, he'd steered clear of talking directly about the king of that kingdom. And then, in last week's parable, getting towards the end of Jesus' story in the Gospels, he finally drew attention to that specific matter, the king of the kingdom. That's where we've got to. And this week's passage reveals ever so clearly that Jesus himself is that king. And so the kingdom of God, about which Jesus has been speaking, the kingdom of heaven is actually the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king whom we've been worshipping this morning. So let's read from verse 28. And we're reading to the end of the chapter. After Jesus had said this, that's the parable about the minas and the man becoming king. 
after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, that's really close to Jerusalem now, a bit like coming to Oxford and getting as far as Headington, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he'd told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? Reasonable question. And they replied, the Lord needs it. Seems like um, this thing had been set up with a password or um, that they knew that when that was said that it was the arrangement that had been made. And they brought it, the colt, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, a bit like coming down Headington Hill into the city, The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray a peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This passage is all about Jesus being king. Even to the extent that when the disciples quoted Psalm 118 in their praise, they misquoted it to include mention of the king. 
It's there in verse 38 where it says in Luke's Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, what they cried out was, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118, only there it says simply, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they are so focused on the kingly nature of this man whom they'd been following that they naturally enough said something different. And they misquoted and they stuck in what it was that they understood was happening at this moment in time, that a king was coming into the capital city. And they cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so all I wish to do this morning is outline four different qualities of that king that are displayed for us clearly in this passage. Four different qualities of the king. And the first of those is humility. Jesus sent two disciples to get a donkey, a young donkey, a colt. The other gospels tell us that this colt was still with its mother and that the disciples went and they got both the mother and the colt. That's why we've got this story here of two together. Although um, the Gospels actually are slightly at odds with this picture because they have Jesus on the younger animal that has never been ridden before. And it seems that this, in order to understand why Jesus did this, we need to turn into the Old Testament, and in particular, to the second to last book in the Old Testament, where the words of the prophet Zechariah are recorded. And in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, he prophesies this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it's clear that Jesus has set this up. He's arranged for his disciples to go and collect uh, this young donkey. There's an understanding that the donkeys, that this young donkey is needed. And Jesus is put on it. He gets on it. It's a little bit like a sword in the stone moment. In that story of King Arthur in our cultural history in the UK, there was the tale of a sword so embedded in a stone that only the rightful king of England could ever pull it out. And all these men tried with all their strength. But little boy, being rightful king, was able to take it out. And it's like that. Jesus has set up his own sword-in-the-stone moment to make it clear to people his own understanding that he is indeed the rightful king, not only of England, but of all creation. He's very deliberate and all around understood, just as if some young boy went and set something up in Parliament Square in Westminster with a sword and a stone and invited people to look and say, see what will happen. We'd understand there was, well, maybe they were having a joke, but if they were being serious, they were trying to say something about kingship and the right to rule. And Jesus is doing that right here. And so riding into Jerusalem on a foal, 
links together two things because of what's said in Zechariah. It makes it clear that Jesus is king entering Jerusalem, that he is the king of the kingdom about which he's been teaching. The spreading of cloaks says the same thing. In 2 Kings chapter 9, if you want to look it up, in verse 13, there was another king in Jewish history, King Jehu, before whom people spread their cloaks at the moment of recognizing his kingship for the first time. And these cultural references, these echoes from Jewish history are sounding loud and resonating in our story this morning as that takes place. A cult that had never been ridden before at various places in the Old Testament, those animals that are used for God's purposes, those that are given to him in various different ways in the temple practices were animals that had not been used before. They'd never had a yoke put on them. They'd never been ridden before. They were pristine, unused, and in that sense, special and fit for a king. That's what's going on here. Jesus is announcing himself as king of these people. At last, after years of people wondering. But the donkey doesn't only speak of being the king, the rightful king. It does speak of humility. Kings in the ancient world, in the ancient Middle East, did sometimes ride donkeys as a normal way of getting around. Um, and also had horses. They took horses out to war, more useful in war than a donkey. And they used horses when they were presenting themselves as majestic and glorious and strong. Jesus here chooses to take the humble place, though he could have ridden into Jerusalem on a glorious steed with complete with saddle, like you might expect, and other trappings. Here he chooses a donkey, at that a juvenile donkey, a donkey that's not been broken and may well not walk in the straight line that you'd hope for, might tip you off and make a fool of you with no saddle, just cloaks spread on its back, no trappings, no chariot or other sign of great power and glory. Jesus is king. His first quality is that he's humble. We say, don't we, that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not so with Jesus. He has absolute power and he's incorruptible. He's what's needed at FIFA. first thing is that he's humble and constantly prefers others. Here's the second thing. He is praiseworthy. In the gospel story that we've just read, they cry out praise to God. The other gospels tell us more of the story of what happened that day, including people not only throwing down their cloaks, but cutting palm branches and waving them. 
which was the thing that people did to express excitement. And clearly, this occasion of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was loud and enthusiastic because they cried out in loud voices and they went and cut off bits of trees and they threw their clothes around. It was an enthusiastic occasion. We don't know quite what it was that upset the Pharisees. And maybe it was the fact that they were being too raucous on what was supposed to be a pious occasion as the feast approached the religious festival in Jerusalem. Maybe it was the fact that they were making so much of Jesus and they didn't like that. Most likely it was both. Why did they act in this way? Well, extravagant worship arises from people who have received much. If we turn back in Luke's gospel, there's a story that we looked at quite a while ago in this series. It describes Jesus being anointed by a woman who could accurately be described as sinful. That was the identity that she had in society. And she came and she broke expensive perfume on Jesus. She wept on him, wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, poured her perfume on them. And Jesus comments on it in verse 44, saying to the uh, religious and rather stuck-up host that he had, he said to Simon, who was, that was his name, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she's wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, which would have been customary, But this woman, from the time I entered, hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Extravagant worship, enthusiastic raucous praise arises from people who know that they've received much. Many commentators on this story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem say that the crowd were excited out of political motivation, that they thought that maybe finally Jesus was going to get rid of the Romans, and they got caught up in a moment of political excitement. But the text tells us that the loud praise arose in response to many miracles. It's there in verse something, 37. They began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they'd seen. That's the truth of it. That worship is response to divine activity. If we have not seen any divine activity, we will not worship. Worship is not merely a discipline that we embrace. Worship is a response to God who's taken the initiative. So what about us? 
how enthusiastic and joyful is our praise? Question. There's a little bit of diversity amongst us in that regard. My guess is that if you were to do the fair and objective thing and compare the enthusiasm of our praise with a kind of global average, we'd be somewhat below it. If you picked a country at random to go and join in a church service, chances are you'd find people looking more enthusiastic than we are. So I'm going to comment further on this on the basis that we could do with an uplift in our joyful praise. Where we aren't joyful in our praise, is that really because we haven't experienced much grace from God and therefore there's not much to respond to? Or might it be because we're insensitive to God's grace such that we see no real cause for joy even though it's really there? Because Jesus says there really is cause for joyful praise. It really is there. He puts it like this. Even the stones know that I'm praiseworthy. And the scriptures tell us it's not just the stones, actually, but the trees, too. Isaiah 55 says, The mountains and the hills, they're all stony, will burst into song before God, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. The stones will cry out. The trees will clap their hands. There's an understanding somehow in the world that God is worthy of praise. It's a reality that he's worthy of praise. That's how it is. In 1826, a book was printed in the printing house of the private chancery of the Russian Minister of the Interior in St. Petersburg. And a copy of that book made its way to Oxford, which I read as a graduate student. When I read it as a graduate student, I was the first person ever to have done so in about 180 years. And I know that because I had to cut the pages open of of the book. And um, many of you know what I studied. I did a PhD on cockroach feeding behavior, very worthy subject. And as you might expect, this was a book about cockroaches, which might explain why no one had read it. I don't know. Um, But the author wrote this. In what was at the time a scientific, he's writing in a scientific context and said this, that if anyone took the time to learn about insects, they would be convinced of the miraculous care of God for these tiny beings of which the smallest seems to cry aloud, the hand that made us is divine. He's saying, wherever you look, You can think of the mountains and the hills, the stones. You can look at the trees. You can even look at the cockroaches. And they cry aloud, the hand that made us is divine and there is cause for praise. There is cause for joyous praise of the living God. The stones know it, the trees know it, even the cockroaches know it. And to misquote Ella Fitzgerald, the birds know it, the bees know it, even educated fleas know it. In shallow shoals, English souls know it. Goldfish in the privacy of bowls know it. I'm sure giraffes on the sly know it. 
Even eagles as they fly know it. Let's do it. What are we going to do? We could fall in love. We could fall in love with this king. He's worth it. Now, this message is hard for those who feel themselves to be realists. For those who would prefer to pick up another portion of scripture and to say, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, there we wept. There are those who would want to point out that there is a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. To which we need to say, yes, there is. The New Testament calls us to mourn and to rejoice. Not to limit ourselves to rejoicing and ignore the suffering and all the cause for lamentation in the world. But equally, not to limit ourselves to mourning and to hold back from joyful celebration. We're called to mourn and to rejoice, to mourn indeed with those who mourn, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're meant to take turns with doing those different things uh, with our whole hearts. Perhaps our problem is that we try to live in such a measured way that at all times we would take account of all things and in doing so stay on an even keel of mixed rejoicing, I don't know, mournful rejoicing and joyful mourning. And we're, you know, we understand all things and hold them all together and therefore stay bland. And the mournful don't feel particularly empathized with and the joy remains so deep that we never see it. For those who find it hard to rejoice in the face of the suffering and trial that this world does indeed hold, you may find a verse helpful from the scriptures that I certainly found helpful. It's in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul describes the spiritual life that's made available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says, this treasure has been put in jars of clay. I find that helpful. Because it there really is treasure. There really is the shining, radiant life of Christ that glimmers in the darkness, sparkles, and is true. And there really are jars of clay. The jars of clay are generally not only made of clay, but broken and dirty. And and the treasures in them, the right thing to do, surely is to acknowledge the reality of the both. To recognize the challenges of this life, all that is yet unredeemed, all that is broken, all that is distasteful, frankly. And yet also to recognize treasure for what it is. It's not a true thing to be absorbed with all of our focus on the mess and to ignore the treasure as if it's not meaningful as if it's not there, as if it's not real. On this occasion of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the treasure's on display. You see it portrayed, radiant Christ riding into Jerusalem. And the disciples do the right thing. 
They praise the Lord. They honor him. Let's do it. Let's praise the Lord with them. Third thing. That says at the top, compassionate judge. is a picture of the moment on the Mount of Olives, seeing the city coming down the hill, where Jesus proclaimed a message and wept. Verses 41 and 42, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And now it's, it's hidden from your eyes. He lamented. It's interesting. As the crowd rejoiced, Jesus lamented. This wasn't just a happy, clappy day. It was a day of contrasts. This king, also called the Prince of Peace, offered to all who would receive it peace with God. And there was every reason to welcome Jesus. But most people in the city were not disciples. They dismissed the evidence in Jesus' favor and so rejected the Prince of Peace and his offer of peace, especially of peace with God. And so we have these strong words in verses 43 and 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. No, Jesus is more than a king. He is prophet, priest, and king. Here, he's not speaking simply as a prophet. He is indeed prophesying something that foretells real events that unfolded. Another 40 years after he spoke these words, the Romans tired of the insubordination of the Jewish people and destroyed Jerusalem. And they did build embankments and they did tear the stones down and they slaughtered the people. So Jesus was prophesying in a way that was foretelling. And yet kings don't just have insight into things, they command. And at this point, Jesus is both prophet and king. He's not merely informing people of a judgment made by someone else. He's making the judgment himself as king. We could turn to other scriptures that make it clear that Jesus is the one who judges the world. So these are an extraordinary few verses. We have Jesus weeping over the city and at the same time judging them, truly condemning them. Now, what are we to make of this? Many of you will know that um, around about the time Bev and I first became parents, um, about 12 years ago, we moved into a house which we were delighted to move into. It was cheaper than we thought um, it should be. And it turned out there was a reason. And it turned out that the reason was that our next door neighbor, 
was suffering from dementia and believed that the Irish homeowners from whom we bought the house were with the IRA and that this, we never knew whether it was tinnitus or auditory hallucinations, but he heard stuff that wasn't really sound, but that disturbed him. And in making sense of that, he'd worked out that the Irish people in the house next door to him were from the IRA and had been sent to chant incessantly to torment him. And he was indeed tormented. When we moved in, he was delighted because he assumed that this trouble would stop which it didn't, because it was nothing to do with anyone in our house. And he went through seasons of trying to make sense of it, of trying to work out whether we also, despite being evidently English, were in league with the IRA, or whether we were so thoroughly stupid we'd not spotted the terrorist cell in our house. As the months went by, it became clear to him that it couldn't really be either of those things, and so he was found from time to time hunting around neighbors' gardens looking for them. Furthermore, as he told us in more detail than anyone other than a specialist doctor should ever have to hear, uh, the nature of his constipation, which was a surprise to him. It wasn't a surprise to anyone that looked at what he ate, but it was a surprise to him. And... He showed me a newspaper article which, from years ago which showed um, someone had invented a burglar alarm for a building that was so loud that when it went off, people, um, how do I say this, um, uh, evacuated their bowels. There we are. Uh, And again, he put two and two together, trying to make sense of his own bowels and the burglar alarm that our predecessors in the house had installed. And he blamed our burglar alarm for his constipation. He was therefore understandably very frustrated with us and quite angry and troubled and tormented and managed that torment by playing his two TVs and his record player and two radios at full volume, 20 hours a day. And then when that didn't work, he'd wander around the house slamming doors and banging pots and pans. And occasionally would come around and shout at us for good measure. And um, when we had Amber was newborn, it was a couple of months old. And that was all quite challenging, as you might imagine. The comfort that I had was the fact that he was 87 and I would outlive him. In all probability. Thank you, Graham. It's important to be accurate. I came home one evening after we'd been in the house seven months to find a couple of police cars outside the house, thinking, oh, I wonder what that's about then. Turned out it was about our house. Bev had been in the garden. Um, but the fence between our two gardens was a high fence, a six-foot fence. And evidently, he'd started attacking it with an axe, saying, I've had enough of all this. I'm coming to get you. Didn't get through the fence very effectively, but Bev went inside, locked everything. Um, oh, I'm obviously out doing church work, praise the Lord. Um, <laughs> and uh, the police came, by which point he'd come round to the front of the house with a machete as well. 
And they, anyway, they went in, they arrested him, they confiscated those things and the meat cleaver, and um, then phoned the police station and said to the desk sergeant, here we go. And the desk sergeant said, he's 86. We're not arresting him. This is, this is, you know, this is not really, this is not what the police are for. This is really what um, the NHS and social services are for. And they just, so they took away his weapons and left him there. But by the grace of God, this, the next bit is not any more relevant to the story, but you'll probably want to know how it finished. By the grace of God, um, I had spotted him going into his GP surgery at some point in those months. And so the next day I wrote a letter to his GP surgery, not knowing which his GP was, but saying, you might, I'd like to think there was a system that joined these dots up, but, um, but you might like to know this is what happened yesterday. And that day, um, to their credit and for his good, they sectioned him. They, said they took him into um, a secure geriatric psychiatric assessment unit and began to work out what, was, what he needed. He came home some months later suitably um, medicated and with a regular visit from a community psychiatric nurse and was much more peaceful until um, he was from South Wales. One day he was found, he, he disappeared. They found him in his car in South Wales trying to find his way home. At which point they took him properly into residential care. Um, and so he was finally cared for. The relevance of that for this morning is, ha- is to do with how Bev and I felt throughout that period, because there were two different ways that we could respond emotionally. One way of responding emotionally, which we did, was pity and compassion. Thinking, this guy has mental health challenges, no one's helping. And we sought to find ways to care for him, which usually rebounded back on us. But we tried. Pity and compassion. On the other hand, he was a stubborn old thing. And he didn't care what impact he was having on other people. And the reason that he wasn't being properly cared for was that he had driven all of his family away long before through his treatment of them. And so there was another set of feelings around indignation, anger, and desire that justice would somehow be done. And we found ourselves flip-flopping between those two things, finding ourselves unable to hold together tender-hearted mercy and indignant anger in our hearts. We could feel them alternately, but we weren't big enough to hold those two things together at any moment in time, and we couldn't see how to resolve them. Can you see the relevance now to Jesus, who it turns out is big enough to hold together infinite love and infinite purity? And to feel all of that all at once and not to be torn apart. It's one of the most amazing things about God that he knows both infinite compassion, 
and infinite holiness and experiences no tension within him. That's beyond human experience. But it's true of the living God. As you turn up the intensity of both love and purity, they begin to coincide. That's something you may have experienced. The more love there is and the more purity and holiness there is, they do start, you can see that they're converging. Even though you might not see them come right together, you can see when you experience those things, more of it coming together. God exists at the point of greatest intensity of both love and purity. And it's in him that all things hold together, including those two things. And so God is unique in heaven and on earth. He's the compassionate judge weeping over the very city that he condemns. And I don't know how you feel at this moment in time. You're probably experiencing the pull of both of those, love and justice. What I know for sure is that I want a king like Jesus to be the judge of all the earth. I don't want a king who has to steal himself from his compassion in order to be able to step up to the plate and judge. I want Jesus. I want, he's worthy of our praise. And here's the last thing. He fights for friendship. He goes into the temple. It says very simply in verse 45, he entered the temple and began driving out those who were selling. The other gospels have, again, a, a fuller narrative, and it talks about him making a whip like this, driving out the animals, overturning the tables of the money changers. Even if some of the crowd thought that as Jesus came down the Mount of Olives that he was going to fight the Romans, uh, he didn't go to a Roman fortress because that's not where the real problems of Israel lay. Israel's real problems lay in the temple. Um, Actually, lots of the Jews knew that the temple was a problem. Um, If we follow Tom Wright's argument around the temple, it was a hotbed of militancy even of paramilitary activity, um, which isn't really what you want in a place of worship. Um, There were questions about the legitimacy of the high priests. There's a story that I think is amazing, that um, before Jesus' time, a generation before, there was a high priest called Alexander Janaeus, who some people thought wasn't fit to be high priest. And so at one of the festivals, the Festival of Tabernacles, they evidently made the habit of taking branches to make bivouacs in which to live during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they made a habit of taking the branches of lemon trees. I don't know if that's because they're particularly good for making uh, shelters with or because it meant that they also contained your snack for the journey. But there were pilgrims in Jerusalem with lemon branches. And when the high priest stood up to the altar to make the relevant sacrifice, they pelted him with their lemons to express their disapproval of the life of the temple. His response was that he had 6,000 of them slain within the courtyards of the temple. See, all was not well in the temple at Jerusalem. 
There were other problems, of course, with the temple, which are explained clearly for us in the New Testament. One of those was that the sacrifices were endless. You can read comment on that in Hebrews chapter 10. The fact that the sacrifices went on and on and on was not actually a cause for celebration at the longevity of the people of God. It was a sign that they weren't really working. And it was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that eventually was a game changer by being a perfect sacrifice. Equally, the temple contained a heavy curtain that separated the place of God's known presence from everything else. And on the day that Jesus died, that temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus dealt with the problems of the temple. On this particular day, he drove out robbers, bandits from the outer courts. This was the only place, as many of us um, you know, we've looked at this before. It's the only place in the world at that time where non-Jews could come close to the living God and it was intended as a place of prayer for all nations. But the temple authorities being absorbed with nationalistic concerns and being mostly interested in making sure that provision was there for what the Jews needed, they gave over the space allocated for non-Jewish prayers to be a place of commerce and trade and administrative tasks with loud bleating and money changing and so on that intruded on prayer and made it practically impossible. And Jesus' response is to fight, to fight for people to be able to come close to the living God. This is another quality that he has as the king of the kingdom. He fights for friendship. And today, it's still God who is active in bringing people to him. If uh, you know God, you're in a relationship with him, whatever the journey felt like up to the point of finding faith in Jesus... When we look back at that journey, we can identify that it was never really our initiative. It felt like, as someone has said, the hound of heaven was chasing us down. God is determined in his pursuit of us. I heard a lovely story this week which just highlighted for me how active God is beyond anything we do in drawing people into friendship with him. I heard a story from uh, Matt Biddlecombe who is actually the company secretary for Oxfordshire Community Churches, but also leads Carterton Community Church. And they had, uh, some summers ago, met in someone's garden in the village of Blackborton, and there sung worship to Jesus outdoors in the summer. One of the members, the person whose house that was, was shopping in the village of Bampton, also in West Oxfordshire, uh, just recently. And a neighbour that she used to have in Blackborton, living a few doors away, stopped her in the street and said, oh, I thought you'd like to know. I've become a Christian. And I'm now part of the church here in Bampton. And it's great. And uh, he said, my story is that one day... 
I was in my garden in the summer and I heard your guys singing and it just changed me. I, something in me was altered and I started a journey towards faith and I'm delighted to have found it or to have been found by God. It's wonderful. Um, we have all kinds of ideas of how we can communicate our faith effectively to people who don't currently embrace it. Um, singing in gardens has never been a strategy that anyone's ever proposed in my hearing. But where God is active, he's fighting for friendship with people. So what we're going to do in just a moment, um, warning the band here, is we're going to have an opportunity to worship this further to praise this king who is praiseworthy. See, right at the end of the chapter, it says this, the people hung on all his words. Um, They were captivated by him, this king. The people were amazed by King Jesus, who was unlike other kings, humble, Worthy of praise, so much so that even the little beasts would join in if only they could speak. And uh, compassionate and active in seeking friendship with people. Not standing at a distance and saying, if you try hard enough, you might get close. But pursuing us out of love. So he is indeed praiseworthy. And my simple question at the end is... and I hope there's a clear answer to this. Is there anyone here? Is there anyone here who wants to praise Jesus? Yeah? Should we do that? He's worth it.